Hello there, it's Leslie Jane Seymour from Reinvent Yourself, and I'm so happy to talk to you today. I have one of a dear friend who is going to come uh, speak to us today, Sarah LaFleur of M.M. LaFleur. She's the person who created that wonderful brand of clothing that is really beautifully designed and I still can't believe her that it's actually washable, but the idea was that she wanted to cut down your bills for dry cleaning. She thought that was crazy. To, she said she was spending $1,000 dry cleaning a $300 dress, which is kooky. Um, and also she wanted to make it so these clothes would travel with you when you're a, you know, a busy uh, executive. Who needs to be figuring out where you're going to dry clean something? So Sarah's... Uh, a great friend, and she and I go back quite a ways. When she was first launching M.M. Lafleur, and I was running More Magazine, we saw what she was doing. We loved it. Um, she brought us in and showed us um, what she was doing, and we gave her some pointers about what we know about our audience. We really thought her things were fantastic for women 40-plus. She thought she was selling to women 20 years old. And um, then when we were able to, we gave her a couple of free ads that were really beautiful and really helped more look gorgeous. And you'll see in here that she actually never forgot that, which is really very sweet. And she's a mega success now. And what's really interesting is she talks about she was supposed to be in public service. That was what her whole family's history and trajectory was. And when that wasn't working out, she just left left a job, cold turkey, and found herself in a situation where she had to reinvent and pull something out of the air that came from a different background. And that's what led her to fashion. So I think you'll really enjoy this discussion with Sarah LaFleur. And we'll welcome her in. Hello, Sarah. How are you? Hi, doing well, Leslie. Thank you so much for having me today. I am so excited that you took the time out of your very busy day to spend time with us. You are such a superstar. And I am so impressed by what you've built. And I know it wasn't all I thought of it. And then it happened that there's struggle and reinvention and all of that. So I'm so just so delighted that you're willing to spend time with us. So let's start by talking about your background, where did you grow up and how the heck did you get into this business? Yes, and, and first of all, Leslie, thank you for saying that. And before I jump in, I just, I feel like it's worth your listeners knowing what an instrumental role you played in growing MM before anybody had known about us. So just a little bit of background when, um, Leslie was editor-in-chief at Moore, and I remember, you know, this is when we had, like, all the five people at our company. You took an interest in our business, and you met with us, and you actually gave us a couple of free ads in Moore Magazine, and I still have those framed in my home because they are the first ads we have ever taken out. And so um, I think that it's just a, a wonderful example of, um, you know, a, a woman who is very well established helping out another one who is not as well established. And uh, it's been a gift. So oh, thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. And it was totally a pleasure. And I knew immediately that you were going to be a superstar. So it was my pleasure. Thank you. Um, but yeah, just to talk a little bit about where I'm from. So uh, I was born in Paris, in Paris, France. Um, and then I actually spent most of my childhood 
abroad. And um, my father was in the State Department. He was a diplomat. So we just moved around every three to four years. That was that was our life. Um, and my mother is Japanese, so I'm half Japanese. And uh, she was born and raised in Tokyo. And so whenever we could, we opted to move to Japan. And so when my father ended up taking jobs um, that were in Taiwan or in Malaysia, uh, often my mother and my sister and I would actually live in Tokyo with my grandparents, with my Japanese grandparents. Uh, so, you know, I, and I came to I came to America for college. So while I am an American by birth, I still, you know, I still feel like I'm, I'm sometimes looking at America through an immigrant's eyes. Ooh, how interesting. And yeah. how did that influence what you decided to do? What did you study in college? You know, so my, basically, so my father's a diplomat, he's a civil servant. And then everyone on my mother's side, with the exception of my mother, worked in public service. So my grandfather was a politician, all of my uncles were politicians. Um, I just thought that's kind of what you do. You graduate from school and then you actually go and work in government or a nonprofit. And uh, I went to a school called um, the International School of the Sacred Heart in Tokyo. And one of our alumna was this woman named Sadako Ogata, who, um, and she was the UN High Commissioner for Refugees. Um, and I, I think she was kind of the early influence, but I really ended up taking an interest in refugee camp operations. And I thought what I wanted to do when I grow up was become a, a relief worker, um, an aid worker. So I, that, that is what I was working towards. You know, I majored in this thing called social studies in college, uh, which really sounds like something you would do in fourth grade, but um, it was like a mixture of philosophy, economics, and political science. And I spent uh, a couple of summers at nonprofits, and one of them, which I, I would really call my, my life-changing one, was um, at a refugee camp in Zambia. Uh, and so I, I just thought that's what I would go and do. And how the heck did you get sidetracked into fashion? <laughs> yeah, I know. My mother says that I am like a woman of extremes because I feel like I kind of I yo-yoed from one career to another. And I mean, if you looked at my resume, it makes absolutely no sense. Um, so, you know, I did that, I did that nonprofit uh, job and, and I came back on campus senior year of high school, uh, college. And I just remember all of my friends came back with the signing bonuses from investment banks and management consulting firms. And uh, this was 2005 and, and times were flying. So um, I just like couldn't believe that by signing a piece of paper, you could end up with $5,000 in your bank account, which is wow. definitely the most I had ever heard of, you know. And um, and so, you know, despite having this dream, I think of, of working in in that world, I was like, well, let me let me check out this management consulting thing. And honestly, with that all that much thought, I, I ended up interviewing. I got a job at Bain & Company. And I, I ended up working there for the first three years uh, out of school, which was really the best, best training ground I could have asked for. Uh -huh. um, and then, but then the nonprofit, you know, still, still called to me. And so I ended up doing, uh, working in two other places, really through Bain, um, one for the New York City's Economic Development, Development Corporation, which was, was essentially Bloomberg's strategy arm um, when Bloomberg was mayor. Uh, so, I, so I worked there in city government. And then I also uh, ended up moving to South Africa to work for a nonprofit down there uh, called TechnoServe that tried to help, uh, we call them um, agribusiness owners, but, you know, South African farmers, many of them who had never even finished the fourth grade, start their own agribusinesses. And so, um, you know, I, I, I kind of kept swinging back and forth between thinking maybe I wanted to go work in, 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 you know, corporate America and be, and, and 
climb up the ladders uh, in that world. And then also really feeling like my heart was um, more in the in the nonprofit sector. Um, and then ultimately, my last job before starting MM was at this private equity firm. Um, so coming back from South Africa, you know, again, I, I think that was the point where I finally realized that nonprofit wasn't for me. I loved the mission. Um, I loved a lot of the people that I worked with, but I, I really found that I was a poor culture fit with the nonprofit sector. Um, I liked things that were fast moving, fast paced. Um, I liked making decisions based on uh, data and analysis. And I found that it was actually, nonprofit is a very complex, difficult world where you need a lot of diplomacy and um, and patience. And I I wasn't cut out for it. So <laughs> I ended up, yeah, I mean, that's kind of, that's the conclusion I came to after essentially trying it four times over. Um, and then I joined this private equity firm thinking that would be way more my speed. Um, but the the long story short, I ended up leaving before, gosh, six months. Um, I loved the work, but it was it was not the right workplace for me. It was, um, I was one of, I think I was one of two or three women out of 170 investment professionals. Um, you know, it. I found it really hard to, to be myself, I guess, in that environment um, and to excel. And I kind of did the thing that you're really not supposed to do, which is to quit without having another job lined up and also quit before a year has passed. You know, I think that's like the, the one piece of advice people give is like, don't leave before you have, you've been there for a year. Um, right. And I kind of threw it all to the wayside. Um, so you quit without a job, which is every mother's nightmare. Yeah. So my parents, I think were certainly, yeah, they were like, why, why are you quitting this like uh, incredible job that you've managed to secure at the age of 27? Um, and I mean, I, it's true. I really felt like a total failure. It was of all the moments looking back, I would say that m that month preceding and following um, that departure from my last job was probably the hardest two months of my life. I really I felt like I, I had been working so hard um, and, and building this perfect resume, uh, quote unquote, and I, I just kind of threw it out in, in a in a you know, moment of, of not frustration, but really desperation. Um, but at the same time, I felt like I had no other choice. Um, so I left and it was, uh, you know, I was trying to figure out what to do next after I, I spent like a good month crying, um, you know, watching a lot of like Grey's Anatomy. And, uh, but, I, you know, I was like, okay, it's not like I have a ton of money saved up. I have to figure out like what I'm going to do next. So um, I... I thought I thought maybe I would go like work for Google or something because that's that's where a lot of my my friends from college had gone. But I remember the one of the in the for one of the first interviews they were like, "Well, what is, what's your SAT score?" And I was like, "Are you kidding me?" I took they the asked you in the interview? oh yes oh, oh please and I was you know at that point I had taken the SATs over ten years ago and I was like, "You've got to be joking me!" Like I I just can't. This is ridiculous. Um, so I, I felt like I needed to start my own thing, but I really, I mean this sincerely. I felt like no company would hire me. Um, you know, now I, I kind of see the, the silliness in that logic, but in, at the time I really felt like I had, it screwed everything up. And so I, mm -hmm. I needed to create my own job. Oh, okay. How <laughs> yeah. old were you? I was 27 going on 28, I think at that point. Okay. All right. Yes, I know. I mean, in hindsight. You're like that's that clearly wasn't the case. You probably wouldn't have got. You probably would have gotten a job somewhere. But um, 
you know, in this tunnel vision that you, I think you can sometimes find yourself in when you're having a career crisis. Yes. Uh, I just really thought there was no other option. And so I had always had this idea for better workwear for working women. Um, and I thought it was something that I would do when, I don't know, I was much older or after I retired. Uh, but I kind of, I had this moment where I was like, okay, well, I don't have a job. I don't have a mortgage. Uh, I don't have any kids. Like, why don't I just take the plunge now and give it a try? Uh, so I think it was about two months after I left my my company, my last company, I officially uh, created an LLC um, and decided to start this company, uh, which really at that point was like a, a figment of an idea. This um, My mother worked in, in high-end fashion, and so this is before she started her own company. Um, so I think through her, I got to see and touch all these beautiful clothes that she would bring home. And I remember like one of my, like my fondest memories really uh, uh, with my mother uh, when I was little is getting her, uh, watching her get re ready for work in the morning. Just like the process of get, watching her get ready. Um, I, I loved that. And I loved seeing this this transformation that took place in front of my eyes. And my mother would <laughs> Yes? Oh, yes. sorry. Yeah, yeah, you, you're probably, I mean, it's um, it's the superwoman moment, if you will. You like walk into the phone booth and you come out ready, right. ready for battle. Um, and she would let me touch touch these clothes. I mean, beautiful Chanel suits, not because she bought them, but you know, because she she was given them uh, or gifted them. But anyway, I, I that's the image that I had of what a professional woman was. And so when I graduated from school, I thought like, oh, I'm gonna go wear my Chanel suit to work. Um, of course, like, you know, very quickly realized I was not going to be shopping at Chanel. And if anything, I was like looking through the discount racks at various stores. But um, I was appalled really at just the level of clothing, like the quality of clothing and how much money I was spending on workwear that I didn't even like. Um, uh -huh. and, and all these things that I would have to go and get tailored uh, because right. they didn't fit me right. And, right. Uh, and then dry cleaning. I mean, talk about a sexist industry. Dry cleaning is very sexist. If you just yeah. think about the amount of money that they charge women for their dresses versus men for their shirts, despite that yeah. men's shirts often have more fabric. Yeah. Um, so, you know, really like the cost of ownership of a wool dress, I, I realized I had this one dress from Theory that I loved um, that I, you know, it cost like $300. So I spent a lot of money and I, you know, wanted to, I mean, I wore that probably once a week for five years, I realized after five years of owning it, I had spent just a thousand dollars maintaining that dress. Ah. So, yes. Crazy. Uh, that is, that's really the cost of dry cleaning, not to, not to mention the environmental factors. So right. I was like, can we just make beautiful clothing that could be sold in a high end fashion brand, but is actually at a price point that most professional women could afford. Um, so that was the, that was the start of the idea. Now, if your mom was in public service, though, how did she end up in Chanel suits? I'm confused. Sorry. Everybody in my family but my mother um, was in public service. So my mother, um, she was kind of the black sheep of the family. I think she saw. <laughs> she was the Chanel sheep? Oh, yeah, yeah, exactly. She, I mean, if you just think about it, she was at Estee Lauder for a while. Um, she was at Hanai Mori, which is um, a high-end Japanese designer. Um, she, uh, worked for another leather goods company. And I think she loved, she, she used to say she loved beautiful things. Um, and she loved selling them. And, um, 
so she, I think everybody in the family thought she was, you know, she was like, what, like, what do you mean? You're not going to go like help people. Uh -huh. um, yeah. But she, I don't think she found that at all interesting. Um, right. That's so funny. Okay. Yeah. So it was everybody but your mom who was in public service. I exactly. Yeah. Agree. Okay. And so she was on the sales end of those places of Hannah Morai and of uh, Estee Lauder. She was in sales. Yeah. She was doing a lot of marketing, mostly marketing mm -hmm. and PR. Okay. Um, yeah. So growing up in the eighties, just to put things in context, most moms were not working. And I just remember in, at kindergarten, all of my friends as moms would come and pick them up at 3 p.m. or whatever. And for me, it was always um, my nanny who I adore and who is my second mother, but it was, it was not my mother. Mm. And I think uh, like being young, I was, uh, I just thought it was uh, strange and maybe even I was, I was resentful of it. Right. For it. Right. Um, but I think as I've grown older, I've really, uh, I came to appreciate it. And I thought it was, you know, actually so cool. Um, and I think in one of the, when I decided to start M.M. Lafleur, uh, you know, one of the things that I, I recognized um, when I when I moved here for college is that on the cover of these fashion magazines were often women like, I mean, now it's probably like the Kardashians or, um Giselle or whoever supermodel. Right. Um, but in Japan, a lot of these fashion magazines uh, on the cover, you would find slightly better looking models than the average woman posing as professional women. Really? And, yes. Um, so it's not celebrities. It's really, it's this kind of uh, aspiring image of what a professional woman looks like. And, you know, Japan has a lot of problems with sexism in the workplace. But I think one thing that these magazines really got right was portraying this aspirational image of what a professional woman could look like. And so as a kid, I would pour over these magazines and I would think to myself like, oh my God, I can't wait to like go to my 8 a.m. meeting with a coffee in hand. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's, uh, I mean, now I'm like, kill me if I have to get into the office before nine. But um, it was, I, th I thought they did that so well. And so I think, Leslie, that's why, I, you know, more also as a publication, which I think is was so rare um, to actually talk about uh, real professional women's lives, but then also put some shine on it. Um, I think right. there's like so much of the conversation around working women is around leaning in or 77 cents on the dollar or just like all the things that are going wrong. Yes. And I think you need to actually create something for people to aspire to. I mean, I want little girls to want to become professional women, not dread the prospect of becoming one. Right. Um, right. And so, you know, content from, from the very early days was, was it really important for my company um, and something that we put a lot of energy and money into. So, Talk about launching M.M. Lafleur and what were your issues? What were your barriers? What was the issue with being a woman entrepreneur? And um, what were your struggles? Um, well, I, yeah, no, I'm, I'm laughing because there is really not a day where there aren't 10 things that go wrong. I think it's just your t tolerance for uh, your tolerance for the the upsets increase. So yeah. by the end, you're just like, nah, it's just Whatever. another day where 10 things went wrong. Right. Um, but I will say, I mean, the beginning was really hard. The first two years of starting my company, 
were so, so difficult. Um, and I will say it's not, of course, it was just difficult financially, but uh, I would say mentally and emotionally, that was the most challenging part. Um, I am somebody who really enjoys being part of a team and enjoys working with other people. And the solitude of yeah. being at home and, you know, kind of trying to put pen to paper and really make something out of nothing. Yeah. I was, I was so anxious um, and really went through a lot of self doubt. Um, and, you know, I, I've started to talk about this more, more openly, but my, my psychiatrist was a really big part of my being able to get through that year. Wow. Um, that's great. Yeah. It's a, uh, Yes, but it's, it's, I mean, I think I know, you know, you've also left and launched Covey Club, but, yep. um, and, and you are somebody who is known in the yep. industry and probably you have a lot of respect from the people around you. I think yeah. for me, uh, people were like, what the hell is she doing? Um, right. you know, oh, there she is like starting a, a little dress company. And there was so much just kind of condescension that I had mm. to, um, really like not listen to in order to just keep putting one foot in front of the other. Right. Yeah, no. And it's very isolating. That was my surprise. I didn't want to go back to being a full-time writer because I felt that was too isolating. And I was shocked to find that for my first two years of starting Covey Club, it was so isolating. You are sitting by yourself trying to make something happen every day. And the thing that I realized is that you get out of corporate life that we don't really realize that we're used to is that corporate life is like a big rushing stream and you just parachute in and you go with the flow. The flow is going, whether you're there Saturday or Sunday or not, or you're on vacation, whatever, the flow's going and you it has its own momentum. The hard, really, really hard part about, I think, being an entrepreneur is literally starting the car cold every morning at 30 below and the car is going. <laughs> That's a perfect analogy. It, yeah. Right? It's finding the energy in you to like create that, that stream that you talk about. Yes. Um, yes. And I think that is why, like, I, you know, I used to do things like, I mean, in my, whether it was my consulting job or my private equity job, it was kind of just part of the drill that you would work 14, 16 hour days, and you would be there until 3am, but you were there with the other associates. And so no one's really complaining. And it's kind of, I mean, you're tired as hell, but you're having fun too. Yeah. Um, and then I realized I actually like, I can't work 16 hour days by myself because no. I wake up the next morning and there's nobody else to carry me. No, um, You're having to do it all on your own. And so just self maintenance, um, um, like mental health, all those things took on a whole new significance that it it didn't have before that. Did you get any tricks about how to maintain that? Did you come up with any kind of things that people can replicate to get you through that part of it? Or, you know, did you change your location? Did you like where did you find anything that worked or you just finally got to the point where you were out of that stage? Yeah. So a lot of people would give up, you know, that's a it's a tough stage to be in. It's so true. And, you know, I, yes, it's so funny because I, giving up really wasn't something I thought about. Um, that's neither like a, that's not a, a, a positive or negative comment. I'm just kind of saying it, it, it was the way I felt. I didn't, I didn't really 
feel like there was any other option. That's what I was, that's what I was going to do. Um, I, I took up running quite seriously. And so, um, that became very important to me. I started eating better. I, I mean, I never used to eat breakfast, but ah, okay. three meals a day became an important part of my day. Um, the most, probably the most important thing that I did was finding a network of other people who were also starting businesses or maybe even a little bit ahead of me or behind me, but just in a, similar stage because I knew they uniquely understood what I, what it was I was going through. Um, yes. My boyfriend, um, now husband, I, you know, dorm him to pieces, but like he would go to an office every day. And when he would get home, I would like, I, I would be like a, a puppy waiting for human interaction. I'm just like, talk to me. <laughs> um, and he's like, I'm all talked out. I don't exactly. want to. I just need to like watch TV and go to bed. Right. Um, hilarious. Okay. Yeah. But he, uh, you know, and so I think, um, you know, he tried to understand, but it's it's just, it's really hard to understand this unique solitude unless you have gone through it yourself. So having that network of, of um, people really who've become some of my closest friends, that was essential. How did you find them? Did you locate them through online? Did you, was it other entre entrepreneurial events you went to or what happened? You know, I actually, so the person I became closest to, I actually met her at my college reunion. I was not somebody I knew at, in college, okay. um, but at my reunion, I happened to sit next to her, you know, I think while there was like a dance party going on and we just started chatting. Um, and I like, I realized that she uh, was running a company called uh, Baking for Good. Um, and so we just started chatting and, and she actually, one of the most helpful, um, introductions she gave me was to uh, this tutoring company. Um, because, you know, the one thing that the other thing that people don't tell you is that when you quit your job, uh, the pay paycheck stops coming in. Right. Um, so I was like, wait, what, in, what do you mean? My like, I have no salary, but um, I suddenly really need to find a way to support myself. And so she was like, you know, think about tutoring. It's what I did for the first couple of years and it really helped me out. And so that's what I started doing. Oh. Um, yeah. And so, you know, it was, so she, she was someone I met through my reunion, but, um, other ways there are various startup networking groups, um, and you can find them online. Uh, there are meetups going on. Um, I think like just even now compared to seven years ago, there's yeah. so many more resources. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think it, finding your, your group, uh, you know, your posse, whoever that is, that is, that is absolutely essential. Yeah, yeah, that's what we're trying to do for older women um, with Covey because there really are very few places. There are a lot of millennial places, but there's not a lot for you where you don't go in there and say, this is for my kids, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I love them dearly, but I want to be with, you know, little women with a little more experience. So when you got those, how many years are you up and rolling now with MM? So the company is officially five and a half years old. Um, mm -hmm. I started working on this seven and a half years ago. So like that kind of just gives you a sense of it took two years yeah. to get to a place where we could launch a site and have product. Right. Um, every, everything just took like 10 times longer than I initially anticipated. So I know what you mean. What are <laughs> the challenges going forward for you and what are the things that make you excited? You know, it, uh, I was just talking to my co-founder, Nuri. Um, she she actually left last summer, um, but, you know, continues to be really one of my closest friends and advisors. And 
we were laughing because there was this Jack Welch quote that we came across. Um, and uh, he was like, number one, cash. Number two, people. Huh? The end. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> and um, gosh, there is so much truth in that. Uh, you know, I yeah. see that my, my, my number one job really as um, CEO, aside from setting the vision, which, you know, I continue to do, but now I have an amazing leadership team that, that continues to really hold that up for me and carry it out for me. Um, it's two things. It's to make sure that there's enough cash in the bank to keep the business running so that we can continue to grow. And then the second one is to continue hiring good people um, and making the best team possible. And it, it really just boils down to those two things. And so uh, that is that is where I focus most of my, my time and energy. And what were you surprised about in terms of the consumer? What did you discover that you did not know when you started up? You know, I thought in the beginning that just having an amazing product would be enough. And that is where we spent all of our energy and our time. My other co-founder, Miyako, um, who is our creative director, I'm not the designer, just so just so we're clear, and that's a good thing. Um, but she was the head designer at Zach Posen and this enormous talent. And, and uh, so we sourced the best fabrics from Italy and Germany. We made it in the best factories in New York. And I, you know, our finished product was and still continues to be the greatest source of strength for our company. Um, but when we launched our site in 2013, um, we just, we could not grow. Uh, we could not scale the business. And I thought customers would see how good our product was and it would be a no brainer. But it really wasn't until we launched a new model for our business, which we now call the Bento, that our business really scaled. And um, the, the main difference between the site we launched and the new business that we that we ended up launching was that uh, we ended up telling first time customers, don't pick for yourself, we'll do the picking for you. Wow, um, that's yeah. so interesting. Yes, yes. And so, you know, we said, fill out a brief survey. Based on that, our, our stylist will pick the products that we think will work best for you. You're going to try them on at home, you're going to keep whatever you like, and you return whatever you don't like. And then uh, and then, and then the end, and that's when we'll charge your credit card. And it wasn't until we launched that version that our business, uh, really scaled. And actually when we launched that, our revenue tripled overnight. It was to this day, one of the craziest things I have seen. Um, and, and I think what that taught me is just how hard, uh, first of all, how hard online shopping is, but really just how many decisions women have to make every single day. Mm -hmm. And the last thing they want to do when they get home is try to figure out if they're a size eight or a size 10 or whether mm -hmm. they want to wear a green dress or a brown dress. Mm -hmm. And that kind of deliberation, I mean, you spend your entire day making decisions um, from the super nitty gritty ones to like the big ones. And, and so just be able to take that work out of the process and say like, don't worry, we're going to pick for you. We're going to make this easy for you. That has made all the difference in our business. And so interesting. And where did you get that idea from? Uh, it was because <laughs> it was because we were about to go under um, in this winter of 2013 or 2014, I should say. Um, and we had a room full of inventory and we were like, oh, my gosh, we have to find a way to move this inventory. And so we said, well, we've got about a thousand customers on our mailing list. It wasn't that many. Um, 
but we said, you know, could we just send a bento to every single customer or could we just send a box of dresses to every single customer and see if they keep anything? And so in this act of desperation, we emailed our customers saying like, saying, hey, we know based on what you've ordered before, we think you'll know, we'll know what you like. Would you be willing to let us send you a box of items? And a surprising, I think it was 18% of customers say, said yes to that email. Wow. The most we had ever seen. And we made, we ended up making more money in that one week than we had in any other month leading up to that. Isn't and, that fascinating? And yeah. That, so it's really desperation back up against the wall that you have to come up with a solution and it works. Totally. Um, fascinating. You, you kind of have to be ruthless about uh, revenue. You have to really, I, I think that's the other lesson that I've, I've really come to appreciate is like, you have to really want to sell. Selling is so hard. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I'm learning that. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's, um, I, and I think I'm just, my personality is more reserved. I think I'm a polite person. Yeah. Um, and I had to just get over the notion of like, well, I don't want to be pushy. It's like, yeah. no, like you're not forcing anything on anyone. If, if the message resonates, they will respond, um, right. but you have got to try everything in your power to right. make the sale. Yep, and I understand that. I'm I'm adverse to that as well because as being an editor, I was always the person who could give things away for free, and then someone would come behind me and say, "Okay, now I want you to advertise." But I had nothing yes. to do with that, so it was very hard to learn to ask for money at the same time and say, "No, I'm providing a service," and in order to stay alive and keep prevent providing you a service we need to come to some kind of financial agreement. Totally, yes, it can't so, all be goodwill. Um, so as we close here, Sarah, which has been a wonderful discussion, are there one or two pointers that you could give women who are thinking about getting into the fashion business from wherever they are, a do and a don't? I would say, as you could probably tell from the narration of my very haphazard career, I had zero experience in fashion. And I mean, if I'm being honest, I still don't really feel like I work in fashion. But okay. I think my point is that you don't necessarily have to have experience to know what the industry is missing. And I have learned everything along the way. I did not know what merchandising meant or pattern making meant or, uh, retail prices, cost of goods sold, all of that. I mean, I really learned, I learned all of that as I built the business. But I think what I had was a good instinct about what the market was missing. And so I, when I speak to a lot of women who are thinking of starting their own businesses, they said, well, you know, I want to go apprentice here. I want to get an internship here. I, I want to go, um, I need to learn more about this. And I, I don't think any of that is wrong. I just want to remind women, I, you probably know more than you think and your instincts as a consumer will serve you very well. Um, so that's probably the first thing, uh, to just go for it. You, you probably already have what it takes. The second one is that finding a stable source of income, I think will provide a lot of relief. So, you know, I mentioned that I was tutoring the first two years. Um, my husband was a writer and wanted to be a, a, a novelist or that's what he thought initially. I remember he was dog running cause you can run you get paid more to run dogs rather than walk dogs. Oh, okay. <laughs> and, um, and you know, he actually kind of taught me this lesson first, um, which is that like all cash is green. And if you, um, you can do anything, you can bartend, you can work at a store. Um, and, and I think what it 
what this did for me is it, it provided me not a not a big income stream, but a, a stream of income that made me feel like I wasn't dwindling um, through my savings. Uh, and so I think what what happens often when you quit your job cold turkey and you decide to plow all of your energy into your startup is that you feel like you're working against a deadline and that deadline being the day your money runs out. Right. And and so by having this this really like side hustle for me, I felt like I got to prolong that timeline and really just refine my business until I felt like it was good enough. Um, so I, I you know I tell other aspiring entrepreneurs just like find your side hustle whatever that that may be, um, so that you feel like you have that you you have some sort of income that that is coming in so you can support yourself. Right. Well, awesome. God, so much to learn and so interesting. And I'm so glad that you talked about your personal struggles with all of this. And I think our, certainly my members are going to be thrilled to hear from you because they buy your clothes. Oh, thank you. And yeah. we're glad you make them. And thank God you make them all washable, which is still, still something I'm too afraid to actually do because I don't <laughs> believe you. I think I'm afraid. That's the fashion editor in you. Right. I'm like, it can't be washable. It can't possibly be. No, I know. <laughs> Leslie, it's been such an honor. Thank you so much. And um, hello and thank you to all of your fans at Covey Club. Great. Thank you, Sarah. Take care. Take care. So thank you all for listening to Reinvent Yourself with Leslie Jane Seymour. If you liked this podcast, I hope that you will give us some stars and give us a, a ranking. Uh, that's the only way that we get seen by other people who could then be inspired and helped by these stories as well. So please, please, please take the time, give us a ranking and a couple of stars, hopefully five. And we really appreciate your time. And thank you for joining us. I hope that if you like what we're doing, you will spend time with us and listen to our other stories. Well, we would love it if you know of anybody out there who should be on our podcast. And you can write to me at Leslie, L-E-S-L-E-Y, at CoveyClub.com. And give me their name and what they do and why you think they'd be great for this podcast. We are looking for women all across the country who are doing great things. And we hope to bring their stories to life and then bring them out there so that they can inspire all of us. Thanks again for joining us and we'll talk to you next time.